Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. What is the Human Rights Watch and what role does it play as far as talking about and promoting and discussing and trying to rectify many of the human rights abuses around the world? My guest today is an expert on this institution. Mr. Luis Charbonneau is the United Nations Director of Human Rights Watch. Prior to joining Human Rights Watch, he was a journalist for more than two decades, most recently as the United Nations Bureau Chief for Reuters. Louis Cherbonneau, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Thanks, Phil. It's great to be here. I appreciate you being with me. Let's start off with a very basic question. Uh, just very briefly, what is the Human Rights Watch? When was it formed? Why was it formed? So Human Rights Watch is the largest U.S. Uh, human rights organization. We're number two in the world. The biggest is Amnesty International, which is based in the United Kingdom. But we began in uh, 1978, three years after the Helsinki Human Rights Accords were signed. And uh, the Helsinki human rights agreements were basically a way to get um, Eastern Bloc communist governments to commit to uh, fulfilling international human rights standards, um, which was something they at the time clearly didn't intend to do, the communist governments in, in Eastern Europe, but they wanted access to Western financing and all of those good things. So they signed these agreements. Well, Human Rights Watch in its original form, it was called Helsinki Watch. And it was all about those Helsinki Accords. And so three years later, they created it. And what they did was monitor how well communist governments were living up to their commitments. And of course, they weren't living up to their commitments. There were dissidents um, in Czechoslovakia, Poland, other countries who were being put on trial um, for speaking out, for criticizing the communist regimes. And uh, Helsinki Watch monitored trials. They were um, getting information out to the media about what the real situation was like uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Then um, uh, over time, we had, um, there was that Helsinki committee and then uh, there was a, an America's Watch. There was an Asia Watch, an Africa Watch, um, the America's Watch, for example, looked at um, U.S. support for um, oppressive governments across Latin America and all of those things, which were very important in the 1980s. And then in the 1990s, they decided to put it all together, all these different watch groups, and it became Human Rights Watch. And then when the Balkan Wars got underway in the 1990s, we were already a global institution. That was before my time, but um, uh, it's, 
Interesting that three decades ago, after the Cold War ended, um, Human Rights Watch got its accreditation at the UN as a non-governmental organization through ECOSOC, the Economic Social Affairs Council. Um, and actually, one interesting thing that I learned recently now that last week Russia closed down our office in uh, Russia because of uh, the work that we've been doing on Ukraine and other things, um, Russia was actually instrumental in ensuring that Human Rights Watch got UN accreditation back in the early 90s. Um, how the world has changed, it's it one is, of the great ironies, and we may want to come back to that. We, we are, I've got that in the lineup. We'll get back to it in just a few minutes. Uh, if our viewers, and I know that many of them would like to, would get more to get more information, they can go to www.hrw.org. So you're now accredited at the United Nations. And of course, the United Nations is somewhat of the epicenter of covering human rights violations and hopefully dealing with them in many respects. You've got the Human Rights Council. We think back to 1948 with the Declaration of Human Rights that was uh, really uh, shepherded through the UN, uh, mostly by Eleanor Roosevelt. We see the United Nations has a variety of, of entities set up to deal with this. What are the two major, I mean, there's so many human rights violations. We could talk about Sudan, we could talk about Libya, we could talk about wherever, but what are the two majors, I should say one now, especially with what's going on in Ukraine, but is there some other one that's up there that's as devastatingly horrible as Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, it's always difficult to sort of compare and contrast human rights um, crises. They're all bad. And um, we don't um, get into, you know, what I like to call bean counting. But, you know, each crisis has its own, um, uh, it's, it's, its own tragic causes and aspects. But I should say Human Rights Watch is, um, we're, active in about 90 countries. Um, we try to follow everything. If there's a big crisis somewhere, then we will mobilize people to hopefully get on the ground and to see things. And we have um, uh, people who focus on the research. They get on the ground. We have a crisis team, um, for example, in Ukraine right now, which I'll talk about in a second. So we have people who show up get there or they're on the borders. Um, then we have people like myself who um, work very closely with our researchers on the ground and do our advocacy. And we take the information that we gather on the ground and in our research um, and present it to um, governments, to international organizations like the UN. And we come up always with recommendations. We, a lot of what we do, it seems like journalism on one level where we're interviewing people, gathering information, trying to you know, inform people about human rights abuses, which is something that you know, good journalists are doing every day. But we try to go a step further with recommendations for governments, for international organizations. What can you do to change things? Um, and then we try to follow through and make sure that 
that change actually happens. So um, we're actually going much further than journalists in that we're not content with just getting our information out there and making some headlines. We want things to change. We want war criminals to be put on trial. We want accountability. Um, and so, so we're not satisfied until we've actually seen that change. So two crises that we're looking at. Um, uh, or, you know, we'll talk about Ukraine, but let me first talk about another one, which is very important for the entire UN uh, system and is really quite a devastating one. Um, just last week, we uh, launched a joint report with Amnesty International on crimes against humanity in Western Tigray in Ethiopia. Um, that is a conflict that has been going on since November 2020. Um, the, it, is, it has been a horrific uh, conflict that has involved all kinds of, of atrocities, um, uh, mass killings, torture, uh, rape, um, uh, imprisonment, um, and these are... Um, uh, crimes and human rights abuses that have been um, committed by all sides in that conflict. And so um, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty together um, interviewed over 400 people to get a, a very clear sense of what exactly is going on. And what our report describes is a very um, horrific ethnic cleansing campaign, which, as I said, is one that amounts to crimes against humanity. Um, and as I said, we're very, um, we're, we're all about the recommendations in addition to um, exposing the abuses that we have lots of detail about. Um, one of our recommendations is for an African Union-led peacekeeping force in Western Tigray um, to focus on the protection of civilians. Um, we would like this peacekeeping force to be cooperating with various UN humanitarian agencies. We also talk about the need for humanitarian access. One of the um, awful aspects of this conflict has been a blockade of, um, of the Tigray area, which has prevented um, humanitarian organizations from delivering food and medicine to needy people, to helping women who have been raped to get treatment, um, uh, medical and psychological treatment. So th this is um, one of the uh, most important um, uh, reports that we've done recently. I mean, all of them are important, but this one took a very long time. And, you know, we did it with the world's biggest um, human rights organization so that the number one and number two are together, even though, you know, we have very different working cultures, you know, which goes beyond the fact that we're an American organization. They're a British organization. 
Um, but we also have different organizational cultures, but we set aside all of those little things. And, you know, uh, we, we came together with a very strong report with strong recommendations. We've been sending it to members of the UN Security Council and other UN member states to make sure that they're highlighting it. Um, tomorrow, the UN Security Council, for example, will be discussing um, behind closed doors, unfortunately, but they will be discussing the situation in Ethiopia. And so um, one of my colleagues and I uh, spent yesterday sending um, information about our report to UN Security Council delegations, telling them, make sure that you highlight these things that we have um, found in our report that you emphasize the importance of humanitarian access, of enabling UN humanitarian agencies and their implementing partners to get access on the ground to save lives. And um, we also point out the need for accountability because right now there, there, you know, there's, there's a lot of interest in commitments to you know, what the parties to the conflict have said would be a ceasefire. Um, we haven't actually seen that ceasefire materializing into what they claim it should be. Um, but if they are going to do it, and if there is an end to the conflict, we need to make sure that issues like accountability are not forgotten. Um, as much as they may want to set things aside using amnesties and things like that, we remind, like to remind people that sustainable peace is never possible with amnesties for the most serious international crimes. That's, that's very true. And of course, Tigray has gotten a bit of coverage, but not nearly as much as it's, it needs to have. And hopefully our viewers will really learn more about it. And one way to do it is to go to your website at www.hrw.org. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite you to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with the PBS or Community Access Television Station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup or a think tank, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer, you like our shows and you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're talking with Mr. Louis Charbonneau, who is the United Nations Director at the Human Rights Watch. Louis, in about the last, I can't believe how fast the time's going, the last 10 minutes we've got, we can talk about Ukraine. I, let's talk about the role of the United Nations and any, anybody else you want to as far as helping to bring a peace to that very troubled area of the world. We've seen that the UN Security Council has been paralyzed because of the way the Security Council was set up with the five permanent vetoes. And of course, Russia now occupies, has one of those vetoes that it took over from the former USSR. And so the Security Council has been pretty much paralyzed, but you've still got the, the rest of the UN system that's very involved in trying to provide assistance. And I think of agencies like the UN World Food Program, the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF. You've got the International Atomic Energy Agency that's dealing with the Chernobyl 
problem. So the UN system really, although part of it's paralyzed, the, the other parts are really on the front lines, are they not? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. I mean, in recent weeks, I'm sure you've heard it, as I have, people coming up and saying, what use is the UN? Why don't they just shut it down? It can't do anything. They see all the misery in Ukraine. And you know, I get it. I understand the frustration with that. But often, that is the UN Security Council, which, as you quite rightly said, was created to be dysfunctional with the veto powers. And we have serious issues with the veto powers. And I, I was very interested to see yesterday that um, uh, Liechtenstein, which is an interesting small country because they have had this real commitment to accountability and international justice issues. They have put, they have circulated a UN General Assembly resolution that will require every time a permanent member of the Security Council uses its veto, this will require a special public debate in which that permanent member of the Security Council will need to explain itself. They will be called on the carpet and say, explain why you used your veto to block uh, a UN Security Council resolution. So just recently, we saw Russia, a party to the conflict, um, and under the UN Charter, it should have abstained uh, from a resolution that called on Russia to stop its invasion and pull its troops out of neighboring Ukraine, but it did not. It vetoed that resolution. Russia would have to, you know, and I think this resolution will get passed, and I certainly hope it will get passed, would need to stand before all the other 192 member states of the UN and explain itself. And I don't think Russia has any good uh, explanation for why they vetoed it. We have heard what they've said. So Security Council paralyzed. You're right that the World Food Program, UNICEF, um, the International Atomic Energy Agency have been on the ground in the most difficult of circumstances. Um, yet now the the UNICEF has been warning about um, uh, so many uh, children. Um, the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF, um, one of their specialties is water, access to water. So many children in, um, in Ukraine don't have access to clean water supplies. This is dangerous. I mean, we need oxygen to survive. We can't, you can't survive more than three minutes without oxygen. Well, it's, you know, three days without water. Um, you can survive, experts say, three weeks without food, but you need water to survive, particularly children. So this is something that UNICEF is working on. And, you know, we often forget that while the Security Council is, you know, busy with the big powers beating each other up, um, we have people on the ground in uh, places like Ukraine or Ethiopia risking their lives um, to save people's lives. The, the, the UN um, Refugees Agency, the UNHCR, they're also doing their best to help. You know, there are, when I looked this morning, it was 4.7 
million refugees that have gone over the border of Ukraine into neighboring countries, most of them to Poland, but you know, also to countries like Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, Moldova. Um, and those countries need help. Um, country like Moldova is, is very poor. And then, you know, Poland, um, Slovakia, Hungary, they also need help. Uh, they, these are huge numbers, particularly in Poland. So the UNHCR is there. Now, could they be doing more? Yes, I think so. I was personally just a few weeks ago on the border of Ukraine, and I have to say, I saw mostly non-governmental organizations helping refugees as they were pouring over the border literally 24 hours a day. I only saw one person from the UNHCR and one person from the uh, uh, International Organization for Migration. Um, and I have pointed this out to UN officials that we need more people in those blue vests on the borders to make sure that that things are happening also to protect people from things like human trafficking, um, other things that so many of these vulnerable people coming across the border uh, you know, are facing. But um, the UN is doing, um, I think, what it can, what it can to a certain degree, but they need to do more. Um, and in certain areas, I, we need to see more mobilization, but also member states need to help them. Um, but like I said, uh, thank God for the non-governmental organizations that are handling the heavy lift at this point. That's a very um, and then the IAEA, very important. This is literally a, a, a nuclear powder keg where you have all of these nuclear uh, installations fighting around them and uh, very worrying. And thank God that the IEA can keep an eye on it. And hopefully we don't have... Uh, Chernobyl disaster part two, um, but sorry, Bill, go it ahead. Was Chernobyl disaster number one, <laughs> part one was horrific, but I'm glad you brought yeah. up, I left out, I, I forgot to mention about the UN uh, Refugee Agency, and of course, this year alone, they're working with over 80 million refugees around the world, 80 million, 15 years ago, it was 10 million, so they are they're there in different places, and I'm sure they would like to do more in Ukraine. But I'm so glad that you mentioned them because it's it's critical that we we look at when we do look at the United Nations, we look at it objectively. There are strengths and there are weaknesses. But I hear talking heads, some of them very intelligent people, who just flippantly say, "Well, the UN's useless." Well, it tells me these people know very little or nothing about the United Nations, and these are some very intelligent folks. I'm not. Uh, we don't expect much from Fox or One America News or uh, folks like that who are UN bashers, generally speaking, from the word go. But these people were very intelligent. And I thought they just show how little they know and how poor uh, research that their staff did, unfortunately, for them and certainly didn't do them any favors. Well, Lewis, I can't believe we're just about out of time. But let me ask you in the last the hardest question in the last 30 seconds. The United Nations does not run the International Criminal Court, but it did set it up. And the ICC is one of the few, if not the only place, maybe outside of a special tribunal in the world where somebody like Putin could be taken or whatever. If that ever happens, it's a long shot. But do you think that uh, that should happen? Should Putin go for the ICC? And just we have about 30 seconds left. So that's the hardest one to answer. 
I'll make it quick. Um, okay. The ICC is is in the midst of an investigation. We were very pleased to see that they got a mandate and quickly moved to do that. Um, maybe it is a long shot that President Putin would end up in the dock at The Hague. But if they get the goods on him, if they decide to um, pursue a prosecution and indict him for war crimes on the basis of command responsibility, because that's what it would be, um, they may say he'll never get there. But I'm sure that the former president of Sudan, um, uh, President uh, Omar Hassan al-Bashir, um, said, they'll never get me. Well, he's, you know, he may very well end up there. He is sitting in a prison cell. Charles Taylor never thought that he would end up in The Hague. And certainly Slobodan Milosevic, the Serbian leader, was probably telling people that they'll never get him. But he ended up in front of a war crimes tribunal in in The Hague. So, uh, you know, I would say, you know, um, uh, famous last words for those who say they'll never get me. You never know if there's a new government um, that someday appears in Russia and decides that that international justice and accountability and reckoning with some dark periods of their history um, means um, cooperating with the ICC and handing people over, including who, someone who might one day be a former president, you never know. Um, and I'm sure that he's worried about that possibility, and he should be. I won't say that it's definitely going to happen, but I think that um, anyone would be reckless to rule it out as an impossibility. I think you're absolutely right. And we have to look at all avenues of accountability and move in that direction. And one other that really came as a surprise to many people was when the United Nations General Assembly voted to suspend Russia from the United Nations Human Rights Council, which was a humiliating defeat for the Russians. And a lot of people didn't think that would happen, but it did happen. And there are many other approaches that can be taken. But Louis Chabonneau, I want to thank you so very much for bringing us up to date on what Human Rights Watch is doing and these horrific human rights problems that we all really need to work on and to be cognizant of and to get involved in. So again, thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thanks, Bill. It was great. Thank you. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television. Global Connections Television is a private and funded independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to new previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives.